Well, let's, uh, let's come before our great God in prayer now. Uh, let's join together in prayer. The universe is vast and dwarfs us. God is infinite and values us. The planets are old and human history a blip on the screen. God is eternal and lifts humanity into an everlasting relationship with himself. Our loving, our loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that although you're such a, a great God, we recognise you, Lord, as the supreme creator of the universe. Lord, we thank you that you, although you are such a great and powerful God, uh, you are interested in, uh, in people. You're interested in the humanity that you've created. Lord, we, uh, we thank you so much for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the one who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you became like one of us and were willing to, to experience death on a cross, to bring us forgiveness from our rebellion, forgiveness from the times that we uh, usurp your authority as creator, uh, the times that we challenge your right to make the rules, the times that we, uh, we, we live lives in rebellion to you, we live lives to please ourselves, to make a name for ourselves with no reference to you. Lord, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing to take the punishment uh, for all our sin, all our wrongdoing, that we can know you. And so, Lord, we, uh, we confess our sins before you tonight. Uh, Lord, we recognise that uh, we, we haven't done the things we ought to have done, and instead we do the things that we ought not to do. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray you would help us to uh, recognise things in our own lives. That you would help, help us, Lord, to examine our own hearts uh, and put right things which come between uh, yourself and us. Lord, we do thank you that, that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, ever, ever sits on our behalf as an intercessor. Lord, we thank you we can come before you tonight. Uh, we do thank you for the encouragements we've heard, Lord, of the uh, work, as we've heard, going on in Wales over the summer. Lord, we thank you for all the centres we heard about. We thank you that your gospel message was made known to sinful men and women in all of those places. And we pray, Lord, uh, for the continuing work in those centres. Uh, we pray for the um, improvement, Lord, in accommodation. We pray for the uh, practical uh, things needed to be done in those centres to be able to take your work forward, Lord, uh, for next year and for years to come in the future. Lord, we thank you so much for the work of YL. And uh, Lord, Lord, we recognise in your word uh, you've asked us to make disciples of all nations. And so we thank you for uh, the encouraging reports of the Invest course. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would um, continue to bless that work uh, and the Invest groups, Lord, that young Christians would be trained up uh, Lord, that you would um, help us, Father, not just to be seeing our workers uh, going to places to proclaim your gospel and then leave, but that we would be those who disciple uh, young Christians, Father. We thank you for that work that has been going on. And Lord, we thank you for the tremendous encouragement uh, of hearing the work that you've been doing, Lord, in, in Anthony's life and uh, in his family's life. Lord, we, we give you praise for that. And uh, Father, we, we do pray for the ongoing work of the, the Postal Bible School, Lord, and, and the follow-up uh, that goes on throughout the year. We pray that you would, uh, Lord, give wisdom to those who mark the work uh, and all those, Lord, involved in writing letters. We, we do pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to be dil diligent in this work of discipling uh, young men and women, Lord. Uh, Father, we recognise that is 
the way that you have ordained that your church should be built up in our nation. Uh, Lord, that is our desire, to see your church built up, your gospel going out, uh, and, and your church growing, Lord, in our nation. Uh, and we recognise that we all need to be involved in that work of discipleship that you've given us to do. Father, we thank you for the encouragements, and we pray that you'd help each of us, Lord, to be diligent uh, in seeking to, to further that work, Lord, in the areas and the situations you've put each of us in. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the tremendous confidence that we can place in it. Uh, a confidence in your word, Lord, that, that, that we don't find in anything else uh, in, this, in this world, Lord, that there is to offer. And Father, we pray that you would help us now uh, as we hear from your word. Uh, Lord, at the end of a long day, pray that you would give us concentration. Uh, pray that you would help us to learn, Father, that you'd open our eyes spiritually to learn new things from your word uh, and that our confidence in your word would grow uh, as we hear it uh, taught this evening, we pray. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to ask Nathaniel now uh, to come up and read from God's word. Uh, we're going to be reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There are two issues which seem, when they hit the media, to really set the sparks flying in these days. The first of them is if someone who is pro-life is put into a position of influence. And the second is, if anyone dares in any public setting to suggest that evolution is not an absolutely proven fact. This sort of thing really makes the sparks fly. And there are in fact a lot of people who do believe in evolution. You have this man, Richard Dawkins. He said, there's design, but there is no designer. You have this fellow, sorry Alan Pibworth, this is uh, Cranfield University, uh, and he says, 
that a power, an unknown power, wound up the universe and set it going and it bumps into one cosmic event after another and uh, he says there is a power but there is no plan. Even John Stott, a man as respected as him, will say that God used evolution. He took one of that species called Homo erectus upright man and breathed into them the divine life and John Stott himself coined the phrase divine man, Homo divinus, you can find it in his writings. A lot of people believe in evolution. It's simple for them because uh, either uh, evolution created God or God created evolution. It's as simple as that. Uh, but the question, the question that we address and the, question, the proposition I'm bringing to you is, is, is the, the answer to the question, why I am a biblical creationist? And I need to tell you that it is not because design implies a designer. That is true. But it is not the basis for my faith that God, 6,000 years ago, created the world from nothing in the space of six days. It's not because nobody can explain the information in DNA. It's there. In order for information to make sense, there must not only be the information, but a way of decoding it and doing something with it. All of that exists there. It's not because there's such a, an argument for creation as irreducible complexity that the single so-called simple cell is so complex with billions of atoms all arranged in precisely the correct order and functioning and living and uh, capable of feeding and reproducing. And the different DNA strands being able to be unzipped and then replicated, zipped back up, replicated perfectly. It isn't because of the argument that there are something, that, that the single cell is irreducibly complex. Take something out of it, a little thing out of it, it doesn't function. How can it be that that just happened by chance? It isn't even because evolutionists invent false proofs and suppress real ones, nor even that Christians, who are also scientists in our day, Professor Werner Wright, one of the founders of the United Beach Missions, Andy McIntosh and Ken Ham, you see them there. It's not because they today assure me that I am right. Again. I just thought I'd put that in for you. No, no, again, again. It's not for that reason. The reason I'm a biblical creationist, all of those things are arguments in logic. But if we bring logic into it and say we're going to argue from logic, I assure you that evolutionists can match logic with logic. And we can keep going round in circles trying to find the smoking gun, the, the silver bullet that's going to finally say, there you are, there's the evidence out there that they're wrong. No. The reason that I am a biblical creationist is firstly because of what I believe about the Bible, or rather, because of what is true about the Bible. 
Because what I believe about it is, in a sense, irrelevant. Because the truth of what the Bible is exists quite separately to my belief in it. It's because of what is true about the Bible. And the first thing, I'm going to repeat some of what Trevor said, the first thing is that the Bible is inerrant. And these long words, or these religious sounding words, they really matter. The Bible is inerrant. And that means it contains no error. And uh, just look at the two statements that will go up here. Some people believe the Bible is true in all matters of faith and practice. But what do you think about that? Others say, no, the Bible is true in every area in which it speaks. And I want to suggest to you that of the two, we have to say that though the first one appears right, it is wrong. You say, no, it's right. I say, it's right, but it's wrong. We can't be satisfied with less than knowing that the Bible is true in whatever area it speaks. Because even as Luke, the Gospel writer, says to us, facts are to faith what foundations are to the building. And so Luke says, I'm going to write an orderly account of the history, of the facts. These issues in the life of a real Jesus who lived according, in keeping with what the Bible taught, because those facts are the foundation of the faith which we have come to own and believe. And so, as Trevor said, we can look at the Bible and say it's without error, it's trustworthy, whether it's in the singular or plural. Is it in the past, the present or the future? I am, not I was. And we can say with our Lord that every jot and every tittle, the smallest mark, the crossing of the T's, if you like, in current parlance, the crossing of the T's, the dotting of the I's, that is how, without error, it really is. And so the Lord, when he is talking about sanctifying us and making us holy, he says, your word is is truth. The sum of it is truth. And all the parts of it are true. It doesn't merely contain truths. It is, in its sum and in all its constituent parts, true. So that's the uh, first element because of what is true about the Bible. But we also say the Bible is not only inerrant, and learn there is a difference between inerrancy and this word, infallibility. And the truth, the difference is simply this. That inerrancy means it contains no error. But infallibility means it conveys no error. You cannot believe a falsehood if you believe the Bible, if you've understood the Bible. And so the lady goes to her pastor and says, I've got a problem. I keep hearing things that conflict with what I read in my Bible, to which the liberal and modernist and many who call themselves evangelical today will say, well, you're just expecting too much from your Bible. It's about faith. Don't worry about the facts. But uh, we need to ask, what did Jesus say? And the Lord Jesus made this statement. He said, 
Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures? He corrected people and said, it is your failure to grasp what the Scriptures teach that mean you have errors. Well, with great respect, if I can muster it, for theistic evolutionists, they seem to be saying to me that I am mistaken about creation because I do know the Scriptures. Friends, if you were left in this universe with your Bible and no evolutionist telling you how to interpret it, you would undoubtedly believe that 2,000 years before Abraham lived, God, out of nothing, created a world in the, in the time of six days. You would believe that. In other words, left with your Bible, you would understand that that is the reality in which you exist yourself. That is the context of your own existence. We, be, we know that the Bible is infallible. It cannot convey an error. But we also recognise this, that this is true about the Bible. The Bible is one. And it conceals no contradiction. So, the Bible doesn't collide with itself. It isn't having an accent. Let's go back to basics, get into school and remember this. The Bible never crashes into itself. It is self-interpreting and not self-contradicting. Now, I, I owe a great deal to Trevor Knight. Years ago, I don't know whether he still uses this illustration, but it is an excellent one, so I'm going to repeat it, Trevor, forgive me. When you're learning your times tables, you will often see that things seem to be repeated. You learn the one times table, one times one, two times one, three times one, four times one. It's all new, isn't it? And so you go through your one times table. When you get to your two times table, the first thing you learn is one times two. And you think, oh, I've heard that somewhere before. Slightly differently, but it was two times one. But the answer's the same, it's written differently. It appears different, but it's the same. It's not a contradiction. When you get to your three times table, there's the one times three, you've heard that before, it's simple. Two times three, you've heard that before, but it's written slightly differently. Three times three, now that sort of thing has occurred before, because two times two and one times one. A principle seems to be there. But four times three is new. And the Bible seems to operate in this kind of way. New truths, sometimes, as we progress through its revelation. But many things are the old things written in different form, clarifying, reinforcing for us. You see, two fours are eight and four twos are eight. It's different, but it means the same. But if we were to suggest that five elevens are fifty-five, but eleven fives are sixty-five, we'd say something's wrong. One, they can't both be right. There's a contradiction. There are no such contradictions in the Word of God. The Bible interprets itself. It doesn't contradict itself. It is one unit of truth. 
Now, the second reason why I'm a biblical creationist is because of what is true about Christ. Let's ask, what does the Bible say about Christ? And the answer is simple. It says the truth is in Jesus. It says he is full of grace and truth. Many, many other statements. It talks about in him dwelling all the fullness, all the wisdom, all the knowledge. He is called faithful and true. And if you put your trust in him, it says, you will never blush. You won't blush because what he has said will be exonerated, it will be justified, it is right, because he is faithful and true. You will never blush, because he got it wrong somewhere. Well, what did he say about himself? How simple it is, we teach it to boys and girls. I am the truth. There's not not even a half-truth in him. It's not that there are no lies in him, there are no half-truths in him even. No, don't know quite how to take it. Didn't know whether I quite got it right. Sometimes we say, well, I think. The Lord Jesus Christ never had to say, well, I think. He knew it was true. And he said at one point, you are seeking to kill me a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Now, we're left then with a question. What did Jesus Christ say about Genesis chapter 1 to 11? Was Christ just a man of his day? It's an important question. Did he just repeat all those odd ideas which have been disproved in our day by these clever humanistic evolutionists and people who side with them, who call themselves theistic evolutionists? You know, has it all been disproved so that we're amongst those poor ignorant people who still believe what Jesus believed? Was he a man of his day? Remember, he claimed to teach no lies. You can read it. John 8, 46. He'd never taught anything other than the truth. That's what he said. He claimed that he existed before Abraham. He was there, according to himself, at the beginning. He claimed to be with the Father before the beginning. You can trust him. He said, trust me with the weight of your sin and your soul. I will get you to heaven. It's certain. He would say, Amen. Amen. I say to you. And if you want a simple argument, Jesus Christ said, you haven't understood the Old Testament. He told people, you haven't understood the Old Testament. According to some people today, he hadn't understood it. 
So let's say, what did he say? And Jesus Christ said the words, He who made them at the beginning, at the beginning is the crucial thing, he made them male and female. He said that the Sabbath, he isn't a slave driver, he gave us work to do. There are some people who think that the Lord's Day and the idea of keeping one day in seven, we're free from all that. But we're not free from the command to work. Has God maintained his command that we should work and withdrawn the command that we should rest? The Sabbath, he said, was made not for the Jews but for man because God would give us a rest. And then the flood came, said Jesus, and took them all away. Every last one. We see that our Lord is interpreting the Old Testament in a literal way, in a historical way. And because of what is true about Christ, I will have in my mind the same image of the reality as our Lord had in his. When he thought about the universe, he thought about the world that God had made 2,000 years before Abraham. He thought about a world that was created in six days. He thought about a flood that took everyone away. And is your image, is the image of reality in your mind different to the one in his? He said, the scripture cannot be broken. You can't snap it, you can't find a flaw in it, you can't find a fault in it. He's saying he trusted the Bible. A future generation cannot go back and say, there you are, the Bible did get it wrong. And Jesus believed that Bible, therefore he was wrong, therefore how can we trust him? But the third reason that I'm a biblical creationist is because of what is true about Christian doctrine. And this is true about Christian doctrine, that all Bible doctrine is built on the foundation of fact and theology in Genesis 1 to 11. I don't know if you realise it, but the Leaning Tower of Pizza, Pizzas, was not built that way. <laughs> Did you realise it? It wasn't built at that angle. It slowly moved to that angle because something is wrong underneath it. It slowly moved from being usable to being unusable. They're trying to do something at the moment that will really stop its slight movement and preserve it at that angle so they can make money out of tourists for the rest of time. You may have something that appears to be a workable faith But if it's not built on the foundation of the historicity 
of Genesis 1 to 11, in the end, that will display itself. It will display itself. What else do I believe about Christian doctrine? I believe that all Bible doctrine is one single rope, if you like, one single rope made up of intertwined strands. So, for instance, when the Bible speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ as the last Adam, it's built on the fact there really was a first Adam. And just as the first Adam acted on behalf of all those who were in him, so the last Adam comes along, and he's called the last Adam because he comes as the representative of his people. And just as everyone falls down in Adam, so all who are in Christ stand up with him. He acts on their behalf. Christian doctrine is united. By sin came death is the consistent story of the Old Testament and the theology of the New. Not by death came sin. And you may not understand that. But you know, death and struggle and lots of time brings in the end, instead of, you know, uh, nature red in tooth and claw, it brings a person who stands up and says, there are some things I shouldn't do. In other words, he gets a moral conscience so that by all that process of evolution, suddenly man gets a moral conscience and sin is created through this moral conscience that comes only through evolution. That's the story of evolution. But the Bible says no. It is by sin at the beginning that death comes. And the curse, the only explanation for the world you see... When we're trying, when somebody comes along to you and says, why? Why? All the anguish and aches and heartaches and trials and traumas and difficulties and tears and pains go back to the fact that God's megaphone is the curse saying to this world, you are wrong. You are alienated from me. You need to come back to me. My voice is crying out to you and your voice should be crying out back to me asking for help, asking for a saviour, asking for a remedy which he has provided. The atonement by the blood of a lamb, it begins in the garden and it ends in Revelation. This single strand forming these these intertwined strands all together forming this one long single rope. The promise of a saviour and so we go on. And we need again to see that these early chapters of the Bible are the foundation of every department of study and of truth. We cannot view theology Cosmology, chronology, ontology, that's the study of existence. Biology, zoology, astronomy, anthropology, the study of man. You studying psychology? How can you study it unless you understand man and his soul from Genesis 1 to 11? Physiology, demonology, sociology, 
the study of society. So much of our study is compartmentalised, but Genesis 1 to 11 puts it, puts us into the foundations from which we can then have a biblical worldview in all of these areas. So, Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation of every department and truth, and yet when we begin to study it, we will see that these chapters officiate at the funeral of every error. Take the first verse of the Bible in the beginning. Rest in pieces. In the beginning, God. Rest in pieces, we say atheism. But not only atheism, polytheism. Atheism says there is no God. Polytheism says there are many gods. But in the beginning, one God. In the beginning, God created. So rest in pieces. Here's your funeral. Fatalism and evolutionism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the funeral of uh, pantheism which says God is everything. Everything is an expression of the being, the livingness of God. And materialism which says that the universe and its matter is eternal. So I'm a biblical creationist. I've given you three reasons. And uh, the question that perhaps should be brought to you is uh, why are you a biblical biblical creationist? What makes you think in this way? Or do you just shrug your shoulders? Well, the answer, of course, is this. The Bible is either inerrant, it goes either without a single error, or it is indecipherable. If this book contains errors when it was originally given, you tell me where they are. That's what they say. In the Book of Mormon, when Joseph Smith had to deal with the Bible, he said, the Bible, the authorised version, is so full of errors and he was going to correct them all. The trouble is, he never said where they were. So even today, Mormonism is in two parts. One lot use the AV with all its errors still in, so as they say, and the others use a revised edition of it. And yet they're still not sure they've got all the errors out. But you see, if the Bible has errors in it, it's indecipherable. It's worthless to us. The next thing is, if Jesus got it wrong on creation, now, if you're a sinner here tonight, you're with me, aren't you? Tell me this. If Jesus got it wrong here, how can we trust him? Up he goes to Calvary and on Calvary, He is bearing our sins. He's doing for us what only he can do. Why? Not just because he's sinless, you know, but because he is without error. He could only die on that cross not just because he had done no wrong. He had thought no wrong. He had never a wrong view of God. He never had a wrong view of reality. That's him on the cross dying for our sins. And we're trusting him not only to save us from sins, you're trusting him, aren't you, to save you from errors. 
How can you believe that he will save you from error if he believed errors about evolution, creation and the origins of life? Why are you a biblical biblical creationist? Is it because only if Genesis 1 to 11 is a factual foundation can it be the theological starting point for the whole plan of salvation which you have come to entrust yourself to? Theistic evolution isn't an option. We have to say, here we stand. But can I just bring a single application of this to you? What I'm saying to you is, however valuable it is when Andy comes and gives us all those evidences, previously, I remember the first time I went to hear Professor Werner Wright in Milnrow, in a school, giving a lecture on creation and evolution. And suddenly I found a new confidence as if it's all right to believe in creation. I didn't realise, actually, that's quite a wrong thought. It was all right before. It was all right before because the Bible said it before. But it was reassuring to realise that the evidence, the world that God made agrees with the word that God gave. But friends, you do not need a PhD in in, in, uh, philosophy, in the sciences, even in theology, to argue on this issue to confront people who believe differently. The reason I've given these reasons for us to go out with confidence and to say this is right is not only because it is right in the sense that we can have confidence in it in ourselves and be reassured by it, but it gives us confidence when we are witnessing for our Lord Whoever we are speaking to, listen. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, not to them, The creation doesn't shout to man. It says here, what may be known of God is made known in them. Inside man there is a witness to the fact he is created. And then it says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, so that they are without excuse. Friends, you need confidence 
Whatever help it is to hear evidences, we believe the Bible account of our origin because of what we know is true about the Bible. Because of what we know is true about our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of what we know is true about the unity of all Christian doctrine. And when we go out to seek to win this sad and lost world, this dying world, and they come up with their clever arguments, because of what we believe about the Bible, we assert that God made them. And they argue, and we say, no, God made you. And he sent his son to die for you. And he did really die as a lamb, as it said, right from the origin of the world. And you need to understand, we say to them, the fall and the curse. It makes sense of the world we live in. And we speak with confidence to their conscience. And we do it with this assurance that when we say to them, God made you, the great God of the Bible, the great infinite God of creation, the God who is a trinity, that God made you, and you are rebelling against him, and he is the only one who has provided a remedy, we know that inside them, inside them, God has placed, as it were, something corresponding to our message, which says to their own conscience, he's right. That's what this says. They know there is a God. They know there is a God. We don't have to debate it. We do have to declare it. Let us pray. We thank you, our God, that you are our creator. As much as we are thankful for our life and our breath and every other good thing, we are even more grateful that you, in Jesus Christ, are our saviour. We thank you that we may trust your word. It is true. It conveys truth. We thank you that we may trust your Son. He is the truth. We may trust him utterly. We thank you that when we have come to believe the doctrines of the Bible, they have set us free and filled us with an assurance of salvation and a confidence to go into this lost world and to witness to it about your great being. Please continue to give us this confidence and the courage which we need to affirm and to assert and to declare and to witness to your greatness and to your goodness in Christ. It is our prayer for his sake. Amen.